Hello and welcome to the Imagineer Podcast, your unofficial guide to all things Disney. I'm your host, Matthew Krull, and you're listening to episode 151 of the Imagineer Podcast. In today's podcast episode, I have the great honor and pleasure of chatting with Disney legend Doris Hardoon. Doris started at Walt Disney Imagineering, or at the time known as Wed Enterprises, in 1979 working on the development of Epcot and went on to enjoy a career that spanned about 40 years at Walt Disney Imagineering. And Doris worked on so many incredible projects that spanned the Disney parks around the globe. We talk a bit about her work on Epcot in this podcast episode and dive a little bit deeper into her leadership role at Shanghai Disneyland and some of her final projects at Hong Kong Disneyland. But that really just scratches the surface of Doris's incredible career. At the end of the episode, I'll come back and tell you a little bit more about how you can connect with the Imagineer podcast on all your favorite social media channels and how you can help to inspire and create the future of this show. So grab some headphones, pull up your favorite armchair and enjoy this episode of the Imagineer podcast. guest on the show today is a prolific Imagineer who has worked on every Disney resort around the world. And I don't necessarily mean every park, but we're talking about things from the Disneyland Resort to Walt Disney World Resort, Paris to Tokyo, and Hong Kong to Shanghai. Starting at WED Enterprises in 1979 as a designer for Epcot Center, her career spans 40 years at Walt Disney Imagineering, culminating in a lead role for the opening of Shanghai Disneyland and the redesign of Sleeping Beauty Castle at Hong Kong Disneyland into the Castle of Magical Dreams, not to mention dozens of other things long before then. She's one of the few Imagineers who can proudly say she's worked on every Disney castle park around the world, and as of 2022, she can also formally call herself a Disney legend. With that, I'd like to welcome Disney legend and Imagineer Doris Hardoon to Imagineer Podcast. Doris, welcome to the show. Thank you Thank you, Matthew, for having me join you. I'm very, very honored. I it, The honor is all mine. We kind of closed here with talking about or mentioning the fact that you're a Disney legend. I was personally at that ceremony, loved seeing you speak and hearing everything you had to say. I also rewatched it on YouTube the other day just to refresh my memory for all the things that you had mentioned. But I remember it was just an electrifying speech that really spoke to the hearts of all Disney fans. And I want to start there asking about the fact that you are now a Disney legend. And how does it feel after all these years of work to be recognized as a Disney legend? Um, I I have to say, I think I'm still in wonder about it. And um, uh, I mean, that honor that I've been given, I wasn't even expecting it. And I guess that's probably the best part, not to even know about it or understand it in the depth and the and the incredible honor that it 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 means to people that came before me. And for me to suddenly realize that I am one of those individuals. And I have to say, I went right on to Google and started looking at, you know, all of what does it actually mean? And 
who else? And oh my gosh, when I started looking at who else had come before me, I was like really overwhelmed by it. I, I, I am totally overwhelmed by it. And I appreciate you saying that you were there and you heard my speech. And frankly, at first I thought, okay, I'm, I'm not exactly one of these people. I, I'm not a shy person, but I am a shy person. And I don't really think about that kind of stuff. And, and when they said, okay, you're going to be at the ceremony, I thought, okay, I guess it's just get up there, shake Bob Chapek's hand, thank him, and then walk off. But then I realized, no, I think I have to say a few things. So I started thinking about it, and I thought, you know what? It is my chance to, to kind of make note about the value of what it meant to me to receive this award and how it means to me as an individual, as well as as an Imagineer. And so majority of my focus, as you know, you were there hearing it, I, I really did want to make that note be important that, you know, without the fans, I mean, it is the fans that really help us to understand what, how important it is and what we do. And, you know, I never thought about that about what I do is that kind of, you know, positioning for individuals that would enjoy the kinds of stuff that, you know, you slave over, right? <laughs> Most of us do this, as I said, you know, blood, sweat and tears. And of course the love of it, um, you don't think about that. And some of them just go on for so long that there are times when you say, what, what project was it that I started off with and how it ends up, but to be able I mean, for me, on um, especially that day, that moment, to stand in front of that many, you know, it was like 7,000 people, I think I was told, in that specific area, in that room, and to have them all be sort of focused on and appreciating the kinds of stuff that I did and my team members did and others like me did, it, it was just so overwhelming and very, very satisfying to know that it was um, received and understood and loved by by all these you know people and other people I guess that were watching or whoever was watching um, that was pretty amazing I think that that was the part that meant the most to me and suddenly made me realize how important receiving this award was and and on top of that, you know, I always think, you know, why me, right? I mean, there's so many other amazing people that should be instead of me. But, but then I'm thinking, I think if I could reach, it's that classic, if I could reach that one person and they feel, hey, if she could do it, I could do it, then that's what's so great about it. And um, that's how I, I felt. And there were so many cute people coming up to me after especially young ones. And that was just um, delightful. That was just amazing to, and then sign the autographs, you know, which was really fun. So, but that was, yeah, that's how I felt. It was super, absolutely brilliant. That's great. And it is definitely a, a, a sign of the, the tremendous amount of work that you've done and an inspiration to your point for uh, aspiring, perhaps aspiring Imagineers, which I, I definitely want to get to. I have a, a, a different question that you might uh, not normally get about uh, advice for Imagineering, uh, aspiring Imagineers, other than the typical, how do you get into Imagineering question, but we'll, we'll get into that in a little bit. Okay. First, I do want to go back. You mentioned the fact that it's hard to think about 
you know, where you, where you started and where you ended up. And I, I do know that in the beginning of your career, you worked on a project I definitely want to talk about, but, um, before that you had to interview and there's this, um, I guess somewhat famous story of you you apply for a role at Wet Enterprises and you're interviewed by three names that a lot of Disney fans know, Marty Sklar, John Hench, and Rolly Crump. Um, and I've actually had the pleasure of interviewing Rolly too. He's such a, a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful person to speak to and obviously has so many amazing experiences. But, you know, you walk into the room and at that time, I know it, you don't know who these people necessarily are like you would today. But what was that conversation like when you when you interviewed with uh, with those three legends at Imagineering? Gosh, yeah, three legends, and thank goodness I didn't know they were became three <laughs> legends. Who they were because I think I would have been extremely nervous, even more nervous than I was already. But but you know there is some play to, and I I say it like this in in humor. You know, to be clueless at times is probably okay, and um, that's how I felt and. When I was asked to come in for an interview, you know, I did my, my, and I was still quite fresh, mind you. Um, this was really my second so-called job at the time when I graduated and having, you know, arrived in the United States um, for not that long ago and going through college and all that, which was already quite, you know, formidable to me. But um, so I was quite new to the whole aspect of interviewing, let alone to be in the presence of these individuals. Um, but walking into this conference room, you know, I, I, I think about back then, we didn't have the luxury of all of this amazing technology, right? Well, the technology was this little slide carousel, which I lugged around and um, the, the hand typed, you know, resume, um, that I handed out and, um, and I loved clicking, you know, all of the slides, you know, into place. And, and there it was, and the only work I really had to show, of course, I had some schoolwork, but I don't even remember what it was with that, but it was with Marine World, USA, which was my first job out of uh, college, a tiny little uh, family owned theme park in, in South of San Francisco. Um, so I had various things from that, which I, I felt so proud of to show. But then when I look back on that portfolio, I thought, oh, my gosh, you know, it's, it looks so preliminary and so primitive in comparison what, you know, what happens in time, right? But I proceeded to show it. And there was a lot of little conversations because it was dark, you know, it was the, the whole slide thing. And um, I could hear little their voices talking amongst and it was just the three of them and myself. And um, after I finished, they turn on the lights and, you know, I'm looking at them bright eyed, bushy tailed, like, okay, so what, 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 what's next? And, and I must say, all I was after was really just freelance work. Um, Cause I was still employed at Marine World. And, um, and uh, I was just hoping for that. And I had heard about Epcot, but didn't really understand what kind of project that was. So regardless, um, John Henge spoke up first and said, yes, well, this looks really great. Um, and, and they discussed it amongst themselves, like as if I wasn't in the room. And he then said, well, graphics, you know, she graduated graphics and, and my portfolio showed that. But I also had other things which, you know, I thought was quite cool. 
at the time to show like scenics and set work, which I never learned in school. Um, I learned on the, on the job. But uh, so Marty agreed and nodded and went, yes, that makes sense. But thank goodness, later I understood, thank goodness, that Rowley jumped in and said, no, I, I don't believe she should go into graphics, but rather she should be part of the, at the time, back then, it was called the show, show department which today is like the creative um, studio. And I didn't know any better. So I just sort of sat there again, like as if I'm not in the room, but then they just continued to talk about it. And finally, Rowley won out apparently and said, nope, she belongs in, in the show group. And, and there you go. The next thing I knew, they said, great, you're, you're hired. You're, I went, wait, what? <laughs> you know, you said <laughs> Um, not a freelance job. He goes, no, we, we would love to have you join us as an Imagineer. And um, well, long story short, you know, history shows it. And that's how I became the Imagineer. And um, the rest was, is history. <laughs> yeah. Very true. Uh, I know I, I love that story. It, it's very telling about the, um, first of all, to your point, the differences in how you would present in an interview today versus how you would back then, but also about the team that they were forming and the process on the spot, the transparency and deciding where you were going to end up was uh, something that I think is unique. It's not something you would necessarily see as much today, but is is a really interesting story. Um, yes, I had a few people say to have, you know, three incredible, I mean, the leaders of wed at the time be interviewing without hr for instance in the room or anything right. like that um that was pretty cool yeah yeah yeah, yeah. definitely a, a unique time um and and a, a great part of disney history now one of the projects i definitely wanted to call out and i'm going to tell you now this is a um 100 a true story um is the land pavilion and the reason why i love the land pavilion when i was a kid i had a distinct what i thought was a dream a recurring dream and all i remember was an image as i got older and back then things weren't they were not as widely photographed as they are today necessarily um when i got older as i, I had that recurring dream when i was younger and I, I never forgot it and then when i was older i my first trip to walt disney world i was four months old my family went almost <laughs> every year um after that to make a long story short the land pavilion had changed to um, over time. And so my first memories, like visual memories of the land pavilion, it was an evolution of what it original version was. But when I one day came across an image of the original land pavilion, I suddenly realized that my recurring dream was actually a memory of sitting in the land pavilion and looking at all of the images on the walls, the mural, the fountain, um, the carpeted wall. And that was actually my first memory from life was not a recurring dream, but actually being in the land pavilion at Epcot. And I know that that was a project that you worked on. So I had to ask about it <laughs> just for that <laughs> personal reason to be a little selfish here. Um, but I know it was a, a big project in your career at Imagineering as well. So what was it like working on the land pavilion? Oh, wow. That story is amazing, Matthew. 100% true. Really? Wow. Okay. So you had that sort of vision, that recollection of it. Um, you know, it's only in these, these times where I do reflect back, and I've had a lot of young, 
talented team members would ask me about my time, you know, when I first started and um, how was it like? Land Pavilion didn't come right off the bat. I was scheduled to be on Life Health, but um, that didn't come through. And that was so at the time, then Roly said, great. Well, then, you know, you jump onto land. And so he he assigned me because of my um, my styling capabilities as a designer and just my color sensibilities. I believe he felt all right. Well, um, let's assign her for the farm. At the time, it was like the open assembly area, and later it became the farmers market and um, the theater, was, which was the Harvest Theater. And I also did a little bit of work uh, collaborating with uh, Steve Kirk and Jeff Burke, uh, who were the other two main designers assigned to their respective areas within the land pavilion. And land pavilion, by the way, was the largest of the pavilion on opening day um, of the other ones. And it had a lot of elements to it. And then, of course, the, um, the Carl Hodges, you know, um, the boat ride where it goes into the, the biosphere, which is amazing. Of course. But, so my space, Roly, uh, because of the style of my graphics and um, my, my, my color sense, as I mentioned, he said, focus on the point where the front door comes in. And I collaborated with Walt Paragoy, the amazing Walt Paragoy, who um, was the lead designer and artist for the art, which I believe is still there from the entry point of the mosaics arriving into the land pavilion. And then from those doors, everything from that point on, uh, Roly assigned me to it, which was the completion of the theming of walls and then the assembly area down below. So we arrived on the upper level. And then when you go down to the lower level, we had um, the eating area. So that was sort of the, the general, uh, um, assembly of people that could it's like the hub equivalent of a theme park where everybody kind of arrives and center of it was the fountain that was designed by walt paragoy and in his fabulous style which i just loved it, it, it it's so eclectic you know and it and actually when i think back walt's style versus my style was sort of like a wonderful marriage of in a way roly style and Roly has a very specific look about how he designed things. And I think he, he must have felt between Walt and myself, there was a good pairing. And the two of us combined and we were tasked to create something that's in that middle. So Walt focused on the fountain, as well as if you recall in your dreams and your remembrance of the balloons that oh, were up. Yeah. And they're still they're still there, just in I think I think they've modified them slightly. But yes, I love the balloons. Yeah, they simplified it, I believe. Um, that's a good way to put it. But <laughs> it was extremely um, uh, lustrous, and it matched many of the the theming and the styling of the um, carved fountain down below that Walt created. So my job was to then complete around it, which had food stalls. And each of the food stalls was really following more of the Americana, sort of the farmer's market kind of intent and look. And it was through Roly that introduced me to a wonderful artist's work called Charles, uh, Charles Waisaki. And his work was something that I just connected immediately to. 
because I loved his color sense and his uh, usage of graphics in perspective. So it's a very sort of a one-two dimension, foreground, middle ground, and background approach to perspective, which I related to as a designer. I'm not good in, you know, like the re what I call real perspective, like, like an artist would do or even architect uh, would do. So I, I immediately connected with that. And then, um, so I, I, I created, I think there were like six-ish, I think, believe six or seven different food stalls. And I designed all of the signage related to the food um, uh, types that were given to the guest or provided for the guests. And in the course of that, I have to tell the story, which I'm just fascinated by when I think back what yeah. we were able to do at the time. You know, when you start at WED, W-E-D, Walter Elias Disney, and then later becoming Walt Disney Imagineering, we, we all, the artists, we all started in the mall shop. And um, it was at that time when I was assigned to, to create these signage, as well as the styling of all of the food stalls and all of the detail elements. Like there was a, um, a delivery cart. You know, I don't know if you remember, there was a... I remember painting a lot of these things, which is really wonderful. But yeah. in the shop, I got to meet uh, many of the talented individuals there who were on, in many cases, they were the model makers of all of the, the um, whatever projects we may be working on. So in my case, I ended up collaborating with an amazing lady, Anne Momlin, and she was the wood carver who actually carved every single one of my signs that I designed. Wow. And so back in those days, it, what, how she did it was she literally took solid blocks of wood, you know, put it together, and then she began to chisel. I mean, I'm talking about literally hand carving these signs. And, and um, the, they were averaging, oh, I don't know, about seven feet some of them, some, in fact, the farmer's market one, which came in two pieces, three pieces, actually, the center area where the um, the clock was, and then the two wings that went off to the side, that that totaled over 20-some feet. And she had carved every single one of them right there in the mall shop at wow. WED. And I was allowed to actually hand paint every one of them. And I couldn't believe thinking back that today I may be allowed to do that on some of them, but you know, there's so much more amazing artists that could probably do a better job than I did. But at the time, I think Rowley wanted my style, which was a very pen and ink etched look um, to be carried through. So I did, um, I painted it with acrylic and then went back and duplicated what I would have done in my pen and ink form and did it in black outline and created the whole etched line look, which is very reminiscent of that farmer's market attitude there in Americana styling. So I was extremely excited about that. And I also got to paint in the field, um, what, what we call wall graphics, like super graphics, onto the uh, some of the facades of the stall, as well as onto the walls, um, the super graphics. And some of them were you know, again, quite large, uh, maybe 15 feet in, you know, horizontal to vertical. And that was just, and, and I got to go into the field and actually install it, which was the first, right? I, I didn't have that experience. Although at Marine World FQSA, I did, of course, do some of that, but not to the scale and scope 
um, that I was involved with for the land pavilion. So that was amazing. And then I also designed, Roly wanted um, a wall finish within the, the whole second level down to the first level and even to the third, kind of the third, rising up into the central uh, court area where the balloons were hung. Um, he wanted a wall pattern designed and he said, figure it out, go do it <laughs> to me. So I did and I came up with um, a vertical, because everything's about you know agriculture growth and nature and food and so I, I created and designed a vertical like a wheat stalks like very high low in different heights and i did an an entire sort of a i guess a section you might say and you know wallpaper gets repeated right the wallpaper design but my repeat wasn't the classic wallpaper decorative repeat it was very vertical um and mind you, some of these walls spanned, you know, 40, 30 feet vertical, depending on where it was within that building structure. And I had um, an amazing gentleman, Bill Anderson, who is a scenic artist. He ended up, I don't ask me why this happened, but he ended up hand painting this entire design on the on a material that was a perforated, and we wanted the perforated to help on the sound absorption because of the high volume of it and the hard surfaces. And so for some reason we wanted Bill to hand paint it as opposed to having a, uh, a company, a vendor company to print. Uh, so he did, he proceeded to do that. And I think it took him forever to do it because it was so much wall space that he had to do these and it was vertical too. So he had to go on scaffolding, the whole works. It was quite amazing, but it was quite a thrill, I must say, for me to then see all of that as something that I created on paper and then to have it actually be dimensionalized into a space. So that was another little, you know, oh, feather in my cap as a designer, <laughs> a young designer, right, starting. I was only like 20, 27 or something like that. I don't know, long time ago. Well, absolutely brilliant. Thank you for uh, for indulging me on on the lands. Um, definitely one I had to I had to ask about. I had Jim Sarno on the show back in oh. 2018, I think, and so I I had to ask him the same question. <laughs> and so he shared a little bit more about working with Walt on the the fountain in the middle yes. and what it was like to sculpt that. So that was um, always yeah. a, a fun personal story for me to hear. Yeah. Um, yeah. And of course, now, I did. I, yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I didn't talk about the Harvest Theater, but that's oh, yes. to you. Yeah. <laughs> we can um well let's do this. Let's let's um let's switch because there's there's so many projects to get to and I, I want to be respectful of your time as well. And one of the um one of the aspects of, of your career that I talked about in the beginning was the fact that you have worked on at you know, at this point at least, every castle park, Disney Castle Park in the world. We're of course gonna talk about Shanghai and Hong Kong Disneyland, um, but at the other parks at, at Disneyland California, Magic Kingdom, Disneyland Paris, and Tokyo Disneyland, what are some of your favorite projects that you worked on at at those four parks? Oh my gosh, you're you're really asking me to go back in time and trying to <laughs> that you remember. You don't have to remember all four of the parks, but well, different from Shanghai and Hong Kong, um, 
which was quite specific and also closer to current times. So memory is a little bit easier. I have to say the other parks, it was really more about specific either attraction or signage. It wasn't like all encompassing maybe a land area or, uh, or you know, uh, whatever, but it, it was really spotted. And uh, between uh, like Yoshi Akiyama and Tokyo that I worked with for him on a couple of projects, which was a Walt exhibition area, um, gallery area. And um, Anaheim was really with Tony Baxter, uh, many of his requirements and requests. I, I remember I did quite a few things for him in signage in particular, because my graphics element sort of came back again to people um, in supporting leadership and, and art directors. And so he had me do a couple of the, the signage for Fantasyland uh, Dark Rides, which was pretty cool. Um, I think Walt Disney World was another one that spotty in my memory, but I believe it was, again, a lot of these little odds and ends of can you do this element? Can you do that particular signage? And can you maybe do a styling on color uh, for this particular area, environmental area, or architecturally, or et cetera? So I don't have anything specific to be that exciting for you to tell you about. It's all important work, though, in one way or another. Someone idolizes what you write, what you create. So. <laughs> If they're all still there, I'm sure a lot of it's already turned over and, you know, renovated <laughs> many times. <laughs> but, but yeah, it was quite joyful just for me to experience all of those different aspects of it um, and the differences between, you know, the subtlety and yet the differences between each of these parks are pretty amazing. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like all those, all those little details, like we said, whether they're there now or, or not, um, there are they've been photographed they're in in like my case too it's work that you've worked on is forever in my mind as things that i remember from from early back in the day so it's all it's all important work in one way or another of bringing joy and happiness to people even on the smallest of scales um well let's let's transition then to a project that i know that you were um passionate about that you loved working on that didn't come to life, which was Westcott, which was basically a um, an Epcot envisioned for the East, or sorry, for the West Coast. Epcot on the East Coast, Westcott on the West Coast. Um, so I, I'd love to hear your experiences or things that you remember um, from this particular project and why it is so memorable and um, why why you loved working on this project so much. Um. The, you know, once in a lifetime, I, I feel I'm very fortunate to be asked to be part of um, this vision by the company at the time to to create a theme park environment for two locations. And you say Westcott Center, but we were also asked at the same time, same team, same schedule similar budget structure, uh, the Disney Seas in Long Beach. Yes. There was, um, in the beginning, you know, the the excitement by designers and folks like myself to be given this type of task to create a theme park is already enough. But then to say you're doing two at the same time and they need to be explicitly different from each other. And 
basically, you know, there's always business, right? There's always a business acumen associated with everything we do, and that's understood. And um, the logic and concept of having two distinct theme park concepts was because the two places, the two locations where, you know, the company is trying to vie for which one, where do we go next? And I won't get in too much of the Disney Sea, but um, but basically Westcott was the one that we ended up was asked to focus on. And to your question, it was a very formidable time. I would say a very career defining project for me uh, and my team. And the team, you know, this is one of these things where when I got to that point, to be involved with an entire theme park and the responsibility as a leadership to do that. And I had a fabulous partner, Jan Circus, who was the, um, uh, the lead chief architect on the project. And the two of us was very much aligned in our thought process of how we approach the concept as well as just our design sensibilities are similar. And we work extremely well together. And we were allowed to, because of the nature of the, the project and the pre, at the present time when we were working on it, it was really quite important for the company. So we were given a little bit of freedom to pull together our team. And that, I have to say, is uh, really a true key to the success of anything, is your team. And the team team, you know, in many cases, I've been fortunate enough, um, maybe aggressive enough, perhaps, uh, <laughs> as a leader, to creatively say what I want, but also as a producer to really push on the logistic side. So the balance of the two, um, I was uh, lucky to be able to uh, pull together an amazing group of people. And the joy, right, the joy of working together on a team for a project that is pretty amazing at the time. We didn't know at the time, but you know, to say you want to do something for that location in Anaheim, there wasn't actually a preset to say, oh, it's going to be a Westcott, meaning a, a West Coast version of Epcot. It was through many, many conversations and discussions, you know, with the business partners, development partners, you know, the, the requirements, the needs as well as creatively, you always dovetail everything in together. And through that process, Westcott became what it became. And it was really a um, aha moment, I believe, for everybody at the time where we felt there was already a sort of a, a legacy set up for us on the east side, on the east coast. And the notion of that project and, and it's uh, incredible sort of a presence of that project and having worked on it and many of us did because we all started as Epcot babies we then leveraging that knowledge and bringing it forward at the time we produced Westcott I have to say in 1990s mid 90s when we first began we were very relevant I mean, to today's time, the inclusivity relevancy factor that we are so uh, focused on today and should have been all along and should be all along from future on, we were already in that track back in that time on Westcott. We took the basic fundamental concept of the future and the culture combination 
because that that concept, the cliche is a cliche. It works, right? It, it, it totally made sense. So we adopted that overarching principle. But then our team had already progressed, you know, 10, 15 years later. And through that process, and two, coming to a West Coast environment is different from an East Coast environment. All our guests are different. And so with that, there's all these basic conversations that had to happen as part of our, our brainstorming. Who is it for? And how is it going to be similar, but yet distinctly different so that people will fly to both sides of the coast to, to come and experience it so they don't say, oh, it's just a dupe, you know, that kind of thing. Right. We all got that message. And I think our, our leadership was kind enough at the time. Marty and um, Mickey Steinberg, you know, they were and, and uh, Tony Baxter. They were all very amazing, allowing us to do what we needed to do as a team. So through the process, without getting detail on, you know, all the attractions and et cetera, which was, I think it was amazing. And I, you know, selfishly, I wish they were produced. But uh, regardless, the thought process by each of the team members that we assign to the different future areas, as well as then to the cultural areas, and we did not, by the way, for the cultural areas, do distinctly like in, in Epcot, which was pavilion by pavilion. It was really more collective of a continent or collective of a cultural sort of a attitude towards a, a specific area of the world. And through that, some of our team members just latched onto it and they created environments that were to die for. I mean, I, I, I can't think of it. And some of the artwork that you may have seen and others have seen and that we eventually were able to present this project once it passed through our own internal um, executive approvals, it went to a public uh, presentation in the uh, Anaheim Convention Center. And uh, we presented the entire project and we spent months on creating the visual deck to it so that it would be understood when it gets Get shown to individuals that have not had the background or the understanding of what we're trying to say and what we're trying to show as the Westcott project. So I brought in like a hundred orange trees into the uh, convention space because I wanted, I wanted people to understand we're going into a location, which is really where the Disney California is today. It has a history. It has a, a sensibility that was very close to Walt's heart. And it had a legacy that worked within that whole connection with Disneyland. And so the trees created a soft ambiance for guests to meander. And that was the whole point, that you meander through and discover. Of course, I piped in, you know, additional orange smells <laughs> to help <laughs> with the environment. Of which course. Was great. Um, but I think that evening was very telltale for all of us, the team members that spent many years, I have to say, and time on it and our blood, sweat and tears and love for it. And the re reception was amazing. Everybody understood it, saw it and acknowledged the connection back to Epcot, but yet saw the individuality of what Westcott meant and the whole relevance of the messaging that we had 
you know, from the nature pavilion that talked about uh, environmental, from the uh, the whole, you know, temperature control, the land and sea, how that interacts, uh, all the way to the human side of health, um, and then to the sh- the the cultural side of the celebration of the various cultures that are so amazing as far as their celebration of of uh, whether it be a festivity or uh, or even how they view life. So we really used a lot of those two venues of styling, uh, very distinct styling of Westcott to try to interlace and send messages out that the connectivity of culture, the connectivity of global needs by humanity, right, is so important. So those were all the underpinning, which is to me what experimental prototype community of tomorrow sort of began and meant. And that was my learning, my understanding when I began with Roly on Land Pavilion. And then so I wanted to bring it and both Jan and I felt very strongly about that. And the team we brought in also felt very strongly about it. So it wasn't even hard to convey that message. It just came through. And that's why it was such a joy when we worked on that project, because everyone was clicking together. We were like rowing differently, but we were all rowing in the same direction to get this project, you know, happening. Um, So that was quite an amazing experience, not only because of content, but just the the humanity, you know, the factor of working together as a team and and kind of getting that. So when it kind of got stopped, it was a little bit of a, yeah, it was a bit of a moment where it was not easy to, to, and that wasn't the first time. I mean, I've been on projects where, you know, just didn't work out, timing didn't work out, you know, budget, I understand, everything's budget, and that's the same, budget, timing, all of those that, happens behind other doors. Um, We got it. But we thought we threaded that needle pretty tight. And we thought we nailed it pretty tight. And we were told we were nailing it pretty tight. But c'est la vie. So things happen and it didn't. But there are bits and pieces of it. I think, you know, nothing is ever, never put away, right? Yeah. It does come back in some form. And actually, Westcott, I believe, was the first time we had the concept of what I called live the dream. And that was putting in um, sort of boutique uh, little hotel, for the lack of better words. But today it's like Airbnb equivalent or the (laughs) not quite, but much higher end type of feeling. But putting actual um, hospitality onto Main Street so that the guests literally lived in the dream of Westcott and that you wake up in the morning, you smell the coffee being made, you smell the croissants being made down below in the bakery. And uh, we've had a few, we did have a few little hiccups and heart attacks by our operational partners and our maintenance partners when they said, oh, but but then the guests get to see us, you know, power hosing and, cleaning and washing at night and, you know, putting plant flowers in and whatever it may be. And I, I ended up arguing back. Well, to me, that's no different from anyone living in any of the, the cities, the great cities in the world, Paris, Hong Kong, you know, uh, New York, 
you may get up in the middle of the night, go up for a coffee, you can't sleep, or you go for a run. And yeah, you're going to see that kind of stuff. So I don't think it's anything odd, although I know to our our standards, we don't, it's magic, right? We don't like yeah. to have coffee. But I think there was enough logic presented to our team members that everyone finally got on board and felt that that's kind of cool. Okay, yeah. In fact, I think, as you well know, our fans, they love to know behind the scenes and to know the magic behind it to a degree. But So we didn't have too much problems after that once we convinced our partners about it. So, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that was one that got away. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love I love hearing you reminisce about the project nonetheless. And I know that a lot of those elements that you worked on in one way or another found their way, um, at least in some small philosophical way, perhaps to other parts of the Disney parks and experiences. And it kind of segues when you talk a lot about the um the philosophy or the underpinning values of designing a park, it strikes to talking about the development of Shanghai Disneyland. And I know we're we're looking at the spark notes of a very full career and just talking about some of the highlights, but Shanghai Disneyland is one, of course, that we we have to discuss. And it, it there's an underpinning phrase. I know you've mentioned it and many Disney fans will remember back in the day of Bob Iger continuously home, uh, mentioning this phrase, which is the aspect of Shanghai Disneyland being authentically Disney, distinctly Chinese. And mm -hmm. we can see that throughout Shanghai Disneyland. I'm curious, you know, again, this is, we know that there were other aspects of your career. You had been even, um, you sort of stepped away from Imagineering and, and worked in your own firm for a while. And then you get the call to come and work in Shanghai Disneyland and hear about the philosophy that's going to be a part of it. How did you internalize and then, um, you know, transform that or, or turn that underpinning philosophy into a real environment in Shanghai? You know, in our career, um, for all the parks that had already been put into place around the world, there is a sensibility behind carrying a message forward that is a legacy. All of our castle parks have a certain acumen about them, have a certain attitude about it, a certain presence, a certain requirement, not only in the architectural formulation, the master planning of it, but also the intent of it and what it stands for. And, and I, I know from, without even having to ask the question, I was part of a, a team that began quite a while ago in search of Asia. Where do we go as our first entry into Asia? And Hong Kong became the first, of course. And for every location we go to, it makes sense to put your best foot forward, which is also the beginning of storytelling and the whole heritage of the company. So the Castle Park made total sense and there was no discussion whatsoever. So Shanghai, of course, after Hong Kong being in, then is to me, it's like the gateway right into China because Hong Kong is Hong Kong. And we could talk about that a little later. But it became logical that Shanghai be the same. However, the difference is going to China, 
I believe I have to say was the first of everything first for the company. And, and for those of us that actually participated in with it, we could have these, you know, after dinner drink conversations where you go, oh my goodness, you know, the scale and scope of that thing was pretty awesome, but also extremely daunting. And why, why was that? Well, um, it was a difficult thing to have my fellow peers, team members, not perhaps realizing and understanding that going, putting in a theme park, um, a, a castle park into Shanghai, which was the, the city that was chosen to go as opposed to Beijing, um, had a lot of meaning and meaning to not only how we needed to think, how we needed to view this and what should we think about and what should we do. And under the leadership of Bob Weiss, who was the one that dangled the carrot to me to come back and work on it, um, he understood that. And he may not have understood all of the nuances of it, but he knew enough to bring people back in or onto the team uh, that had understanding or notions about the significance of doing this. The combination of the two cultures, and that's how I talk about it. The, the Disney culture, which is distinct, extremely legacy oriented, but only of 100 years, 70 years. And then you've got the Chinese culture of a 5,000 plus years of just very distinct and also unique. How do the two go together when the two really don't know? It's not even girlfriend, boyfriend. It's just, they had no clue what each one was about actually. And I think it was fortunate in a way that Bob called me. Um, he knew my heritage is Shanghai. My, both my parents were born and raised in Shanghai and I am Shanghainese, but I was born in Hong Kong and raised. And so the combination of that, and then additional to just my own personal heritage of my father, my mother, marrying together two very distinct cultures, I think it was very blended into my brain and my DNA as to what that all means and the subtlety, and yet the very frank approach to how would you do a project that's going into the heart of the Chinese culture. So not all Chinese are the same. So that was already an awareness to have to understand. For instance, Hong Kong Chinese versus mainland Chinese, very different in generally the same, but attitude and approach and interests are different. So those subtleties were really geared up very, very strongly and seriously to all of our team members. So just like we did for Paris or Tokyo, it's the same. And that makes total sense. You have to because you're going and addressing content that is going to be for guests that will receive it. Even on the West Coast to East Coast, as I mentioned about Epcot and Westcott is very different that you need to be aware of. So orientation began very um, religiously by the company to help get our team members organized. Um, I think I ended up along with a handful of my colleagues uh, that are from Chinese heritage became the individuals 
really only a handful that Bob brought us in to help shepherd certain attitudes and thinking process of what it what we're about to embark on. In the beginning, when we started in, I was brought back in 2000, the, the carrot was dangled in 2009 late, but it really didn't take hold with the project and moving forward and approved was 2010. And from that point, it was like warp speed. Um, everything was already in a process where we were late, <laughs> even though we weren't, but um, that was just the way we work. And at that time, between you know, 2009, 10, 11, 12-ish, until the, the groundbreaking event that happened with all the executives and the governmental leaders in Shanghai did that ADDC, Authentically Disney, Distinctly Chinese mantra, was even noted by Bob. And he admittedly said himself, he had a thought in his mind, but he really didn't know what he was going to say, but it just came out. And I think it's so brilliant that he had the in instinct and the sensibility to say what he did. To all of us at the time, so that was like two, three years prior to that, we, we didn't have that. We didn't have that element to direct us, to create that path for us as I, as I feel strongly about. But when that finally happened and that came out to all of the team members and the leaders of each of our areas, and I was responsible at the time by Bob Weiss giving me, um, I did initially uh, briefly the front entry all the way into the main hub, which became the Gardens of Imagination, and then the castle. And then later he had me work on the, um, the RDE, the Retail Dining Entertainment District, and other areas around. We really didn't have that clarity uh, that came in the beginning. But once Bob Iger said that, I think it caused a domino effect by many of our land leaders to ask the question, what does that mean? Um, I believe out of all of our creative leaders involved on these lands and responsibilities, I am the only one that is of Chinese descent and uh, background of that. And so the leveraging by Bob Weiss to the individuals that had already been on the project which, who have Asian background, and I speak both the languages of Cantonese and Chinese, I don't speak Putonghua. I understand it, but I don't speak it. But Shanghai is my home in many ways. Um, so speaking Shanghainese was, was perfect. And it was totally understood by the younger generation looking at me going, oh my gosh, you're speaking the old school. And then by the older generation going, oh my gosh, there's still some of us around, which is pretty cool. So that was quite fascinating for me. Um, so it was on two paths for me. One was professional business career, need to do a job and get it done. And the other was personal, emotional, and very much um, difficult for me to have and so the combination of the two kept me quite busy for a good three four years uh i lived there for three and a half years but traveled a lot back and forth in the beginning as you could imagine so the combination of that authentically disney distinctly chinese became uh, 
a major discussion of what do we do? Do we do, I think the classic, you know, logic was, oh, a lot of dragons and red and gold and this and that, very classical, you know, pagodas everywhere. We went through that phase in the beginning um, when we hadn't all physically moved yet. There was still a lot of concepting back at, in Glendale office. And luckily, a lot of my, my fellow um, uh, colleagues understood that maybe that's a little bit too, you know, overt. We don't need to be that, that logical and specific. And I think the discussion about, you know, authentically Disney, which just means that we need to stay true to what Walt had created, the Disney culture. What is it? And all the subtleties related to that, which meant a lot of the storytelling that dates back to the original animated movies. You know, what was all those about? And, and the Castle Park, of course, has a lot of those kinds of elements embedded in to that, that notion. And then the authentically Disney, distinctly Chinese. So what's distinctly Chinese? Well, distinctly Chinese means many things. It could mean the way you the way you present yourself, the way you dress, the way the colors are being used, the way numbers are being used, the sensibility behind the food, the kinds of things that we won't be there to eat them. It's the Chinese guests that will be there that's going to be enjoying this park. So all of us that come from the West uh, that, that know the Disney side of things you should put some of that into it because that carries the legacy and the heritage of what Disney culture is about. But it has to be done in a fashion where it's not a look down, a look up, a look left or a look right. It's, it's something that needs to be genuinely and sincerely presented with a sort of a, a grace, a softness that has meaning towards what the Chinese guests would see it as. So remember, the Chinese guests don't have any uh, years or grew up with any of it. Like myself, I didn't grow up with Disney in Hong Kong. I didn't even know, I know Disney, but I didn't really know the depth except for animated movies. I certainly didn't know what an Imagineer is about until I arrived and then spent years and then realizing what an Imagineer is. So how can a culture that has never had that suddenly overnight, literally, well, you know, four years, five years later, overnight, realize it and accept it and believe it? And Chinese people are, are quite aggressive. I will say I'm quite aggressive. I am aggressive. Aggressive in a way that we demand um, a lot. We demand something new all the time something clear, something I'm familiar with, but different. So it's the yin and the yang, you know, it's the combination of yes, no, yo, no, yes. And that's very confusing to many of my colleagues and my, my team members. So we spent a lot of that effort thinking and talking, my team structure. Luckily, as I continue, many of my team folks were from Hong Kong, or from Shanghai, or from China. So we had shortcuts. We didn't have to do too many conversations. But on that note, I love the fact that that park had 
oh my gosh, I don't know how many exactly different cultures from around the world that came to help us, to assist us. And I did document one point, we had one meeting standing right there in the Gardens of Imagination, which was the hub area. Um, Seven individuals, yes, seven individuals, and we had like six different languages spoken at the same time with two translators that were pretty extremely talented ladies that actually understood and went from French to English to Poutonois to Shanghainese to Cantonese to, uh, what was the other one? Italian, I believe, was another one. Um, So it was just wonderful. It really spoke to the inclusivity, you know, element, the cultural connection between people. Because at the end, we all wanted the same thing. It's just trying to get to the communication of it to make sure that we were on point, that we understood what we had to do. So... I think in time, when I think back and I talk about this um, to people, it was a joy to be able to have been in an experience that it was, it was hard. It was hard to do a lot of things because the weather was quite extreme there. Um, In the winter, it was cold. We, We actually actually had some snow there, but the pollution was hard. Uh, for people to take on. So you had that physical element and the job itself was difficult uh, because many of our vendors were not only in China spread everywhere, but also in other parts of the world. So there was a lot of that kind of traveling. So it was a hardship on, on relationships and individuals' health and et cetera. But then also the, the hardships of just, trying to get through and communicate sometimes was difficult for folks. And yeah, you know, meter versus uh, uh, a meter versus inches is, or, you know, that kind of translation or feet, you know, yeah. a meter versus a foot, you know, yeah, there were a few little scary moments where what <laughs> Wait a minute, we were off by how much, you know, so that was interesting. And a lot of logistics, a lot of the Chinese government requirement and code requirement uh, logistics was a learning curve. So I think the juxtaposition of the two was quite amazing how we got through what we got through. But uh, learning all the, the subtleties of how two different groups of people had to move in the same direction to get something finished. That, that was quite amazing, and uh, it was scary. It was literally very scary towards the end when time was running out, and you're looking around. I remember standing there one morning. It's probably about a, a, maybe two, three months away from grand opening date, which was not going to move. And um, I remember standing at the front entrance and looking down Mickey Ave- Mickey's Avenue, which is the main street, and needs to say there was definitely scaffolding everywhere around the building facades because painting was still going on and and puttying and and finishing it off was still going on the ground. Forget about landscape. uh, All the concrete was more or less laid down, but all the paving hadn't even gone down. There was still piping exposed in the dirt. And I just thought to myself, I panicked. I literally panicked and felt you know, a pit thinking, how are we ever going to get this done? But um, as an executive at the time, 
uh, Howard Brown said so aptly, the Chinese, they don't do marathons, they do sprint. And how true he was, because the word got out, luckily, there was an added push on that sprint. The word got out that Bob Iger was coming, as well as the um, mayor of Shanghai was coming to site to inspect and to do a walkthrough before the grand opening, so to speak. And as I mentioned, that moment of standing there with fear came back literally the next morning and flowers was in, paving was down. A lot of the scaffolding had come down. There was a few up still finishing out. The place just looked amazing, finished out, ready for Bob and the mayor to come on and walk through. And everybody had the sigh of relief and went, great. <laughs> and everything is still standing. So that's a good thing. But, um, but you know, those are some of the subtleties of learning about how, how a group of people work. I mean, there were so many laborers on site, 20,000 at a time. I don't know how many people. It just seemed like there was a lot of people. And none of them really had the experience of putting in something like this. But they know how to work. It's just their way of working is very different from ours. So there was a lot of heart attacks on site by our construction team versus you know who was out there actually putting things in. But it worked. Still and there. It all came together. It's uh, it's definitely a park that everyone must see if they if they get the chance. It's a it's a brilliant place to go. So you briefly mentioned that we of course should talk about Hong Kong as well. It was your your last project was associated with Hong Kong Disneyland. You worked on, as I mentioned in the beginning, the transformation from Sleeping Beauty Castle into the Castle of Magical Dreams, which was a breathtaking redesign, by the way. And I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit about some of the work that you had a hand on with Hong Kong Disneyland, of course, including that castle redesign. When I came back from Shanghai, uh, the executives, Bob Weiss and others, have felt that um, <laughs> he did it to me again. He said, oh, <laughs> how about, uh, would you like to go to Hong Kong and um, help work with Howard Brown and a few other individuals and to create a Walt Disney Imagineering Asia office? Now, that I had to do a double take on. And I thought, what? I another Imagineering office, it's like unheard of to me, right? East Coast, West Coast, that's it. And of course, I couldn't pass that up. And of course, double I couldn't pass it up is it's going home because that's home for me. My parent, my mom is still there. And so that was, I've never moved back to home. After I left when I was only 18, um, I would visit, but I never moved. So this was quite, uh, again, Bob knew how to dangle that carrot in front of me. And so, of course, I accepted. So literally came home from Shanghai, repacked my bags and uh, shipped off again in less than a month, two months. And I went back to, to Hong Kong, stayed there for two and a half years. So my job was twofold. One was to be more on a functional side, working with Howard Brown and the others to create that office. What is it? Creatively was my role. And I worked um, with the creative leaders on in Glendale to help set a, a creative studio in place, as well as any kind of thought process that would help develop uh, that that uh, that company. And so that effort happened continuously. Meanwhile, I was also asked to creatively lead uh, the uh, five five year expansion 
that was given to Hong Kong, which one of which included the transformation of the Sleeping Beauty Castle into a new, new form of castle. The intent of that, that request was really because I don't know how many people know, but you know the the competition aspect of city to city, like New York to LA, you know, kind of deal. It was Shanghai and Hong Kong, and Shanghai having finished the largest, most amazing, enchanted storybook castle, Hong Kong, which ended up with the original Sleeping Beauty Castle of Anaheim and carrying that legacy over to, you know, the gateway, the first point of entry in Asia, um, felt a little shortened, you might say. And true to form, Hong Kong is laid out with a very clear, defined um, feng shui. Feng shui to the Hong Kong Chinese is incredibly important. And so with Wing Chao, who was the lead architect and master plan on that, he worked very diligently with feng shui masters at the time. And it was laid out in a very specific orientation. And it has mountains in the back and ocean water in the front. And that was very, very simply put, uh, an important factor for feng shui uh, layout. Given that, if you were to stand at the entrance of uh, Hong Kong Disneyland, unfortunately, the mountains in the back dwarfed the Sleeping Beauty Castle even further, even though it's the same size as Anaheim. And so there was a thought and process of discussion with our own executives and uh, LegCo, which is the government arm of, of uh, Hong Kong Disneyland uh, ownership and joint ventured with Disney, is um, to think about how can we and what can we do as far as a transformation. I have to be clear, we did not take away the Sleeping Beauty. So that was one of the requirements that I set very clearly and Bob Weiss understood and was very supportive of it, you do what you need to do and figure it out. And because Hong Kong's my home and because of all of, which I won't get into, but just look on history as to what's happening and what will be happening and what is happening in Hong Kong, I have very strong personal feelings about it. And I worked very hard with the Disney um, uh, government relations team, as well as the, the uh, communications team and uh, their legal team in really devising very smartly what should be said, what should be done for that castle and what does it represent. Now, in comparison to all of those efforts happening, the castle to all of our castle park has a meaning. It's an icon. The castle is the central point it has a very strong history that Walt had, had created you know, in 1952 when he opened that castle. I don't know how many people know, and I believe I'm not incorrect to say this, but the original Sleeping Beauty Castle in Anaheim that opened on that day is only part of what Walt had envisioned for that castle to be. And there's a balance of it that never got finished in that castle. So I took that as a okay by Walt looking down on me saying, I think you can think about it in that form for Hong Kong. So Hong Kong transformation became a way of positioning that we respect 
the legacy and the heritage of the Sleeping Beauty castle, but the opportunity we have right now has been granted to actually think about what could it be on top of that or with it. And so the transformation began in Glendale when I hadn't moved yet at the time. And I worked with an amazing bunch of individuals um, and we created ideas for it, various ideas. And all of it went through to executives, but it never quite felt right. One of the key things that was told to me that I needed to achieve was height. We needed height so that we have a comparison, a connectiveness to the Shanghai height of that castle. It'll never reach the Shanghai height of that castle, but it needs to have quite a presence. I understood that and I believed it and I felt that was accurate. And also for the feng shui factor, I think it would have helped with that whole layout and orientation. So at the end of the day, long story short, we ended up with the concept that we did and the def defining time moment was when Bob Weiss said, Bob Iger's coming. Kareem, uh, Kareem Daniels was there. All of the leadership was there. And they needed for me to present this concept that we ended up with. And by that time, I had already created the color scheme for that castle. So it's all part and parcel of the profile and the absolute um, sort of shape of the castle, the logic behind the height of the castle, what was it, who is it, what is it. And as you know, Shanghai is the first time in the history of the castle parks that we went away from the single princess. We went with 12 of the princess as the enchanted storybook castle. And moment, so I need to make note that the Shanghai castle is actually not a medieval traditional castle of our other parks, but rather the Chinese culture is not familiar with medieval type castles. You know, they don't have that in China. Europe has those. And that's why the European castle has a fantasy base so that the competition to Europe uh, for having real castles is not there. So Shanghai became a home. And so the attitude of the enchanted storybook castle had 12 princesses, but it was the home of all of the 12 princesses. And so the likeness of all 12 was represented inside that castle, all of them. Whereas Hong Kong, I wanted it to have it slightly different because it was really playing more towards the hope of the people of Hong Kong and the feeling that there's future for Hong Kong. And also it worked very well for the Disney icon for a park. So the height became that, but then I had I created a bragging rights for Hong Kong over Shanghai, which is we have 13 princesses. <laughs> right. And so beyond, so, so to that point, I had to present that to Bob Iger, but also I took a different tack. So Hong Kong Castle is the only one in the world that carries all 13 of the princess colors on the actual castle itself, facade, and all of the pattern color and uh, icons of the 13 princesses are shown. None of the princess themselves likeness are even represented in the castle. And the reason for that, when I presented it to Bob Iger with bated breath, 
because it's the first time all color. And I could see someone saying, well, it's not going to be kind of like a dog's breakfast, having all those different colors on a castle. No, it was done in a very subtle, and my entire team was lockstep with me. And they did such a fabulous job in sort of recreating an environment, a texture and a color that was so beautiful. And all 13 domes were designed onto that castle that represented each of the 13 princesses styling and technique and, and texture and all their little icons or their finials. So the idea of it is in the end, if we do a phase two, and I'm gonna say it, if we do a phase two with that castle, we could with all of our personal devices and through all the apps that we have, the capability of taking an image off of those patterns, icons and finials of those 13 princesses, you could easily download it onto an app and that app actually will tell you more detail of each of the, of the princesses. So the connection of the guest experiencing physically in the space of theme park in Hong Kong, they could go home and continue the experience and learn more. And then you could dive deeper into the storytelling of each of the princesses. So it became more of a contemporary, relevant, present castle and that's what I had to pitch to Bob Iger in less than seven minutes I was given. And at the end of it, there was silence. And he looked at me, he says, I love it. And that was it. And so the castle is, it is what it is today of everything I just described. And it is incredible. Like I said, it is an absolutely beautiful castle to admire that along with Shanghai Disneyland and of course all the others, but what a, Wonderful um, final Disney-related question to ask you. Um, rapid fire, I want to make sure I mention this real quick, um, and then we'll, we'll wrap up here. So I know you've you've gone on to, after retiring from Imagineering, you have your own design consulting firm. Um, so what is uh, what does your firm offer, and what's that experience um, been like in your sort of elevator pitch? <laughs> elevator pitch. Actually, more <laughs> important than, you know, what I... Well, what I offer is actually I've offered it for over 10 years now. I started a global connections group, which is very dear to my heart. It is really the success of how a project, a relationship, anything happens to be successful or can be successful. And so I've been spending a lot of effort and time working with individuals. Uh, I do talks and lectures, advisory to schools and et cetera. Uh, additional to that, you know, what comes may, right? Whatever projects that may come, I might except and maybe I won't, which is quite nice to be in that position at this point in my career and life. But, um, but, I, but I think at the end of the day, uh, you know, providing any kind of guidance is, is a wonderful thing to pay forward. And we need to do that, all of us. Additional to that, I finally have time now to do work for myself and not have to have an art director over me telling me what should be and shouldn't be. And I am the art director for an art collection that I'm targeting for. And all my work is, is very uh, specific to a styling of stippling, which is a dot element um, of technique of pen and ink. And uh, it's significant to me because each dot to me sort of signifies uh, an individual that I've met in my entire life in some way or form that they connected to me. So my work now sort of continues in that sort of metaphor and that attitude um, that we should all be connected in some way. And the importance of that is, is, is very dear to me. So yeah, I'm spending effort on that. Wow. 
Well, I love that. And I'll, I'll make sure to, uh, to plug it and make sure that people know where to go if they are interested in learning more about <laughs> that. But, um, Doris will perhaps have to, uh, do a part two at some point. I know we talked briefly about some really wonderful projects. It's just a, a small taste of your wonderful career at Imagineering, but I want to thank you for all your work at Imagineering over those 40 years and for taking the time to chat with me today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. I appreciate it so much. And, uh, yeah, anytime you want. I'm at it, Matthew, whatever. You know where to find me. And with that, we close out episode 151 of the Imagineer podcast. I want to give a very special thank you once again to Doris for coming onto the show and sharing all these incredible stories about her career at Walt Disney Imagineering. And I want to give a special thank you to Walt Disney Imagineering as well for giving us the opportunity to chat with Doris and helping us to arrange this interview. It really was such an honor to get the chance to chat with her. Of course, I want to turn this conversation over to you and hear what your favorite Doris creation is from her time at Walt Disney Imagineering. You can send me your answers and feedback in many different ways and the easiest is on social media. Just go to your favorite social media platform. It could be Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or TikTok and just type in Imagineer Podcast. You'll find us there. You can also join our Facebook group, which is the Imagination, also called the Imagineer Podcast, Disney fan community. I love this community because it is such a positive space to chat about your favorite Disney topics and it's a place to connect with other members of this listener community. If you're listening to the show and perhaps this is your first Imagineer podcast episode or you just haven't hit subscribe yet, make sure to subscribe to the show by hitting subscribe or follow on whichever podcast platform you are listening to the show on. And if you love the show, please do consider leaving us a rating and a review in that podcast app. I especially encourage you if you're listening to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, which are the two largest podcast platforms out there at this point to leave us a rating and a review there because that increases our relevance in those podcast communities. And it also lets others know what they can expect when they hit play on their first Imagineer podcast episode. So thanks to those of you who have left us a rating and a review in the past. And if you'd like to take your love of Imagineer podcast to the next level, definitely look into our Patreon group over at patreon.com slash Imagineer podcast. This is a place that you can help to support the show. And in exchange, you get access to extra content, things like bonus podcast episodes, um, extra posts that I have up there with some more detailed information and advice. You get streamable binaural audio that you can download and listen to on the go. It's our Patreon members' favorite uh, perk, or so they tell me. And it, you can also access our private Facebook community. We do virtual events together. It's just a great way to support the show and get some extra content in return. You can learn more again at patreon.com slash Podcast. And if you're ready to book a trip to any Disney destination and want to see any of Doris's creations, which you can see, again, at just about any Disney destination or Disney park, I should say, around the world, definitely look into our travel partner, Magical Park Vacations, over at MagicalParkVacations.com. They are a complimentary service that will help to book and plan out your Disney vacation, and they can provide an incredible level of service. They are who I personally use to book my Disney vacations. And again, you can learn more about them at MagicalParkVacations.com. 
And you might want to consider working with their sister company over at www.parkplanners.com. WDW Park Planners is a concierge planning team that will help to go a little bit deeper in planning your Disney vacation. They'll work with your family to learn a little bit more about your interests and some of the items and uh, attractions on your wish lists, places you might want to eat, and they'll help to form a whole itinerary, a whole plan for your Disney vacation so you don't have to think about anything. It alleviates a lot of stress and guesswork and planning out your Disney vacation, and their team is incredible, and I've worked with them as well. You can learn more about them, again, at www.parkplanners.com, and you can consider working with their in-person tour company that I've worked with as well over at MagicalParkTours.com. Last but not least, I want to encourage you, as I always do, this is the last episode of 2022. The next time you hear Imagine Your Podcast, it's going to be a whole new year, 2023. It's a great opportunity to reflect back on 2022. Think about some of the accomplishments that you have checked off in 2022. Some of the ways that perhaps you fell short and you might want to do better next year, which is always a great thing to think about. As a friend of mine says, failure is feedback. Take that feedback and apply it to the new year with a sense of optimism and with an anticipation of some of the dreams that you're going to bring to life in the new year. And think about 2023 and some of the accomplishments you would like to see. And the best thing you could do is to write out some of the steps. It could be very simple steps, but some of the specific things you plan to accomplish, write them down in terms of what you are hoping to accomplish and achieve in 2023, or at the very least, the progress you would like to see yourself make in 2023 and beyond. And I want you to remember, as always, that inspiring quote from Horizons. If you can dream it, you can do it. Thank you so much for listening to the show, and we'll see you again in a future episode of the Imagineer Podcast. Resort for the world's most magical celebration. Every moment is amazing, the joy is never ending, and the memories last a lifetime. Because when you celebrate with us, nothing could be more magical. Contact Magical Park Vacations to book your Walt Disney World Resort vacation today. Call 585 662 3686 or visit magicalparkvacations.com.